Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. Uh, this is this will be my last Wednesday teaching. I believe Pastor Mike picks up next week for the month of March, and uh, I'm going to be going on to the next topic in the uh, Vision Month that we talked about back in January. And so I've been calling this month "Digging Deep." We're digging deeper into some of the topics from Vision Month back in January, and this one is going forward in uh, going forward into harvest. All right, um, as you may recall from the the message from a few weeks ago, um, let's see if I can pull it up here, we talked about a variety of things uh, um, around the harvest, and we started in John chapter 4, um, a familiar story, John chapter 4, verse 27, uh, this is the story of the woman at the well, if you've not heard this story before, Jesus goes into a region of uh, Judea or Palestine called Samaria, it's to the north of Jerusalem, and Samaria is populated by kind of the uh, disowned cousins of the Jews, and what had happened was the uh, the Jewish people, the majority of their population had been taken captive hundreds of years earlier and taken off to Babylon. You remember this? All right, they've been taken off to Babylon for 70 years of bondage. The people that remained in the region of uh, Israel, as it was formerly known, uh, they began to build up their own priesthood and their own form of Judaism, essentially is what they did. Now, when God restored his people into their land after 70 years, and he sent back people like Nehemiah and Ezra and those guys, um, uh, Zerubbabel, I almost lost it. Um, he sent them back into the area, and he had them rebuild and restore not just the wall and the city, but also the priesthood and the temple and all that. So he was putting everything back in order for the people because there was an entire generation of God's people that grew up not knowing what it was to serve the Lord as a Jew. They had been Babylonian. They had been brought in under the Babylonian Empire. So really, it was probably two generations. And they had been uh, secularized greatly. They had been given... Uh, new names. They had the the Babylonians would literally take the nobility of a nation they would conquer, and they would bring them back to their nation in Babylon, and they would rename them, and they would often rename them after the names of their own gods and deities. And what it was meant to do was to break them down culturally, to take away their identity as foreign people and make them so Babylonian that within a generation they couldn't speak their their native language, they didn't know their native or, or cultural or religious uh, rituals and trends. So it was a very, it wasn't just that somebody came in and took them away. That's horrible enough, isn't it? That's horrible. But then they, they completely broke down who they were as a culture, as a people. So when God sent them back into, the, into their land after 70 years of that kind of bondage, the, um, the Jews coming back that were, that were told to restore everything to, to how it ought to be, where they began butting heads with the ones that had stayed, the ones that had not been taken. Does that make sense? There's a li- this is a little bit of an oversimplification. There's a lot more to it, but that's essentially what happened. And so in the process of that, there was a great schism between those folks and God's people. And those folks took their temple and their priesthood, and they went north to Samaria. And they made Samaria their religious capital. And they made um, the mountains up there their holy mountain. And they made their temple their holy temple. 
okay? And so it was basically a big church split would be the modern-day equivalent. It was a gigantic church split. And, you know, I think it's kind of funny that people still go and build their own temples. They still go and do their own thing, right? God's ordained something in a place, but then after a while, people get bored or tired or whatever or hurt, and then they go do their own thing, right? So it's part of human nature. But this is the people that Jesus is encountering in John chapter 4. Now, it's important to note this because Jesus being a devout Jew, a Jewish rabbi, his disciples being fairly devout, they have some serious issues with the Samaritans. But Jesus says in John chapter 4 that I must go through Samaria. He knew there was somebody in Samaria that was waiting to encounter him. He knew it before she even knew it. Right, So he goes to Samaria, and he parks himself at a well that Jacob himself had dug hundreds of years before. And he, uh, he's sitting there waiting, and he sends the disciples into the village to get food and water and supplies. And as he's out there, a woman comes out in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, to gather water. Now, that's not normal culturally. They would come in the early part of the day because it was hot in the middle part of the day. Uh, the reason why she did not come in the early part of the day was because the other women that normally came would scorn her because she had a bit of a reputation. As we learn in the story, she had been married five times and was now living with a sixth man with whom, or to whom she was not married. Now, even in our day, that would be a little bit of an eyebrow raise. Is that fair? Ladies, if your husband came home and said that his newest coworker was a lady who'd been married five times, You'd be like, watch out. Watch out for her, wouldn't you? You would. Right. And so imagine that within the context of a very conservative, very religious, ancient Near Eastern culture. It was very scandalous. She had a huge reputation, and it was not a good one. So she has, to this point, she has had to change her life to accommodate the circumstances that have impacted her life because of the reputation it's brought her. Jesus, however, is unmoved by her reputation. In fact, he knew she would be there. We don't know how, except other than the fact that he was God, made man, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. So he knew that she was going to be there. And that's why he went. The whole reason he went was because of her. I find it interesting that the, the key to the gospel getting into a village was an adulterous, most likely adulterous, woman with a bad reputation. It's possible that she had been married five times and they had all died. It's possible. It's just unlikely. Does that make sense? Nobody, I don't think anybody would want to be with somebody who'd had five husbands who died. <laughs> That's right. They'd start asking questions as to, now how exactly did he die? In his sleep? The fifth one in his sleep? He just stopped breathing? Yeah, sure. Or he just happened to fall off the roof? The fifth one? You know, maybe she was creative. Who knows? I'm not, that's totally not in the Bible, so please don't say that. I'm implying that she's a serial killer. I'm not implying that at all. I'm being, trying to be funny is all I'm trying to do. But Jesus was entirely unmoved by her situation. And her situation was legitimate to her, but it was a big deal to a lot of people. But she was the key to God getting his message into that region. It's also interesting that the first person that Jesus revealed himself to as the Messiah was a Samaritan adulterous, scandalous woman. Isn't that fascinating? I think that's important 
because that reveals to us that God is not moved by the things that we are moved by, that God is not shaken by who people perceive us to be or who we perceive people to be. There are probably people in all of our lives that we would view as unreachable and untouchable, and and it would take God to do it because they're so this or so that. And yet here this woman who was legitimately so this or that, this woman was the first person that Jesus identifies verbally to, to, to as the Messiah. I'm the one, a Samaritan woman with a rep. So in verse 27, we pick up the story. Jesus has already revealed to her through a word of knowledge everything she's ever done. She has been just completely blown away by this encounter with the Messiah. It says in verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what are you seeking or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? Other versions say, surely this is the Christ. And then the people in the city, they left the city, and they were coming to him. So the disciples get there. They see them talking. And then they witness her, set her water pot down, and run off into the village. And while they're there, probably getting all the stuff back together and all that with Jesus, they begin to see the village is emptying out. There are people. There's a mass of people coming. And again, remember, this woman was the key to that. And they, be, they begin coming. What the Lord brought up in my spirit is uh, when I was originally doing this sermon several weeks ago, is really revealed in verse 35. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? So this is just Jesus saying, hey, they had probably had a conversation previously about the time of year and the harvest and all that. Um, And so in that conversation, it must have come up that, hey, we're still four months away from the normal harvest time. And so Jesus says, do you not say that, that it is still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, when he says that, what they are seeing is a village emptying out. They're not looking at a field full of wheat. They're not looking at a field full of, you know, corn or what. I don't even know if they had corn over there at that time. But you know what I'm saying. They weren't looking at a field full of plants. They were looking at a field of people. A mass of people. It might have been 50 people. It might have been 5,000 people. We don't know. It just says the city was emptied. So the people came out, and Jesus says to them, hey, hey, look. He says, raise your eyes. I tell you, raise your eyes. That word in the Greek, that phrase there, means to lift up your eyes. It implies a change of perspective, a change of perspective. And what the Lord stirred in my heart was, are we seeing the people that he's pulling on and drawing and tugging on, are we seeing them as harvestable people? Are we seeing a harvest or are we seeing addicts or a stupid family or a pain-in-the-butt spouse or or our non-believing children? What do we see versus what God sees? And this is the question. If God is calling us into a season of harvest, a time of harvest, we're going to have to raise our eyes and look from a different vantage point. There will be people that come into this house by the providence of God, and we're going to be like, what are they doing here? There might be somebody you don't like who comes in. And you might have a real reason not to like them. But Jesus says, raise your eyes. Lift your perspective. Change your vantage point. 
Vantage point is a powerful thing. It, it can totally change the outlook of something, of a scene, based on where you're at, where you're seeing it from. If we look at people the way people do, we will miss what God sees. And that's hard. I'm not telling you this. I'm not trying to be pharisaical about it. I'm not trying to be, you know, talking down to you either. I want you to understand, it is hard to look at people who have been bad people and believe that God can do something in their life. It is hard to do sometimes. Because people can be genuinely terrible. But Jesus can handle genuinely terrible people. He can handle a woman with a reputation that would raise a 21st century eyebrow. Not just a 1st century eyebrow. He can handle that. He can handle addicts. He can handle people with anger. He can handle people who have hurt people. You know the old saying is that hurting people hurt people. That's true until they meet Jesus. Then hurting people get healed, and they stop hurting people because Jesus heals hurting people. It, it, it is the reality when we look through the eyes of people, when we, we look through the eyes of earth, the perspective or the vantage point of earth, we can look at people and miss the potential that God has for them. But God has a potential for people that we would write off. The disciples never would have given this woman a shot. They never would have said, oh, this is who you're, of course you're going to reveal yourself as the Messiah to her. Of course. No, nobody would have said that. And yet here he is, revealing himself as the Messiah. And he's seeing the effect of that revelation. And we've got to understand, when Jesus reveals himself to people, even the worst of people, it can get in them so much that they bring other people too. And in fact, that's what we're counting on. We're counting on the fact that Jesus is going to so radically encounter folks that they're going to be like, he has changed me. Come see him. Come meet a man. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done and still talk to me. It's occurred to me in recent months that we as people, we write people off with our limited knowledge of a situation, our, our fears or our concerns, right? Somebody does something hurtful toward us, and we don't know the full scope of it, and yet even with what little bit we know, we're willing to say, I don't need them in my life. And yet, conversely, Jesus knows it all. He knows every sordid detail. He knows he saw it. He, he was present. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He knows it, he saw it, and yet he still chooses to forgive us. If I had full knowledge of someone hurting me, I probably would have a harder time forgiving them. Does that make sense? If I had full knowledge of how someone had sinned against me, especially, you know how it is, the closer somebody gets, the more it hurts, right? The tighter, the tighter in it gets into your life, the more it hurts. And oftentimes we have those experiences and we don't even know it all. And, and we have a hard time forgiving. And yet Jesus knows it all. It's important to note that she said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. They knew what she had done to some extent. But they didn't know everything she'd ever done. And from what they knew, they didn't want anything to do with her. Hence why she was there in the middle of the day drawing water. But Jesus knew it all. And he was sitting there waiting. He was sitting there engaging with a person like that. He engages with us. He knows when we looked at that thing we shouldn't have looked at because we wanted to. Oh, sure, we might have told our wife it just popped up on the TV. But no, we, we were slow to change it. 
Because we liked it. Because we're people. That's what people do. Hopefully, the longer you journey with the Lord, that stuff gets less and less. That's the goal, all right? That's the goal. The longer you journey with the Lord, sin should become less and less frequent in your life. Because your, your desires are changing. Like Brandon preached on Sunday, the fruit of your life is changing. Jesus said in Matthew 7, an evil tree cannot produce good fruit. A, a good tree cannot produce evil fruit. When God corrects that root in your life, when he becomes that root, you stop producing evil things. It just naturally happens. After a while, you don't, you don't talk like you used to because God's changing something in you. you. You don't do what you used to. You don't go where you used to go. You don't hang out with people you used to hang out with. Not because you hate them or you're better than them. God's changing you. He's doing something in you, right? And that's what God can do with somebody. But he knows it all and he sees it all. And yet he still engages with us and he still forgives us. And how often have we gone back to him knowing full well what we've done? And he doesn't kick us out. We'd kick our spouse out for half the stuff we'd do. You know what I'm saying? Right? Half the stuff we've done to God, we'd kick somebody out of our house if they did that to us. And yet he doesn't. And, and that's the reality, isn't it? That's the reality of the grace of God. That's what Jesus was doing in John chapter 4 when he encountered the woman at the well. And he challenged his disciples to raise their perspective and to say to themselves, I can't just look at people the way I look at people. I've got to allow heaven's perspective to enter these eyes. I've got to choose, and sometimes it is a tough choice. We've got to choose to see people for what God sees, not what we see or know. There might be somebody walk in here someday that you went to high school with, and you know exactly how they were in high school. But what if they've come and Jesus is sitting up here waiting on them? Could we, could we be so selfish as to say that we don't want them to encounter Jesus? No, we can't do that. We can't do that. We've encountered him. So if, if he'll deal with us over and over again, he'll deal with them too. Amen? Do we see them as harvestable? Do we see them as people that are part of the harvest? Maybe the reason why they've popped back up is because God's trying to draw on them and pull on them. And maybe he's trying to use you. Now listen, you've you got to set boundaries and lines. Right, gentlemen, if, a, if an old girlfriend from high school starts messaging you on Facebook, asking you about Jesus, probably not a good idea to engage in that situation. All right? Hey, talk to my wife about it. And if she says yes, then you'll know she's really after Jesus. <laughs> if she says, no, I'd rather talk to you, then, you, okay, there you go. Red flag, right? Just be, be smart. Use wisdom. And that's a silly example, but let's just throw it out there. Don't do that, all right? And on the reverse, ladies, don't talk to some old boyfriend, blah, 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 you know. We got to use wisdom, but maybe there's an old friend that's popped up because God's trying to get to them, and He's going to use you to do it. Maybe He's going. Maybe you get to be the person at the well instead of Jesus. Maybe you get to be the one sitting there saying, "Hey, I met a man who told me everything I ever did, who knew everything about me, and yet he loved me anyway. And he's not kicked me out, even when I messed up again and again and again. He's not kicked me out ever since I met him. Come and meet Jesus. Now." In verse 36, Jesus takes a little bit of a, a turn with the disciples, and I want us to kind of touch on this. Because another part of the sermon that was preached a few weeks ago was um, about a parable Jesus told about a man giving a, a large feast and how that he had invited folks to come to the feast, but they refused. They came up with excuses. They said, oh, I bought some land. I need to go see it. Who does that? Who buys land without looking at it? Uh, I married a wife. That was the best one. I married a wife, so I can't come. 
Man, he just pinned it all on the missus. I married a wife, so I can't come. So these people start turning down the, the, the man who's given the feast. This is a parable. And uh, so uh, the, the man who's given the feast says to his slave, he says, hey, go out and invite folks, the crippled and the blind and the lame. Invite them to come in that my house may be full. And the slave does just that. The slave does just that. And he invites and, and they get the people in. And then he goes back to the master and he says to the master, we've done as you've commanded, but there's still room. I love that. Because sometimes as Christians we can get content and complacent with our little Christian bubble. But the fact is that there is still room for people. There's still room for broken people. There's still room for bruised people. We say it all the time in this house, but a bruise is an outward reflection of an inward wound. It's when you're bleeding inside, but it's just showing on the outside. Right? Bruised, broken, lame, mangled, crippled folks. There's room for anybody, any type of anybody at the master's table. And so then the master of the feast says, okay, go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. What that means is go, go out until the edges of the city and the village. Go out to the people who don't even know who I am. Go out to the people who don't even know there's a feast and just say, hey, come on in. Come on in to the stranger, to the wanderer. Come on in. There's people wandering through life, no idea that there's a better option. But we know. We know somebody who set a table. And the point of, the, of this part of the sermon a few weeks ago was that a lot of times when we read that parable, we act like the invited. You always hear preachers say, don't make excuses. Don't miss out on what God's wanting you to do. Don't make an excuse to, to get out of what God's trying to do in your life. But what the Lord was stirring was, in fact, that we are no longer the invited. We are now the slave. Amen. Within the context of that story, Jesus was sitting in the home of religious elite Pharisees, religious people, educated people, wealthy people. He's sitting in their home, and he's noticing how they're doing social chess, and they're trying to sit in the best seat, and they're getting moved because they thought, they, they thought a little highly of themselves more than what they actually were, and then they got moved. And So there's all this up and down, all this junk going on. He's trying to tell them about the kingdom, and they're all worried about where they're sitting. And so Jesus tells this story to convey the idea to them that they're being invited, invited, invited. But if they don't come in, somebody else will. Okay? That was it. Jesus in the story was the slave. He was the one who came saying, hey, my master has prepared a feast. Come on in. And the Jews, the religious folks that he was around at the time, they were saying, he can't be the Messiah. He healed somebody on Sunday, or, you know, the Sabbath day. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. He can't be the Messiah. God doesn't work like that. We're seeing a lot of that in our culture right now. Everybody's freaking out over the Asbury thing. You got lots of people saying, oh, that's not God because they, they're not presenting the gospel this way or that way, or they're not saying this or saying that. Come on. The point is that God is there. He's doing something. And if we get so vain as to think that we've got God so figured out that if he, if he doesn't do it our way, it's not him. Good Lord. We're going to miss it. We're going to miss a great move of God. Not just there. We're going to forfeit one here. What happens in Asbury doesn't have to stay in Asbury or Wilmore. It can come here if we get hungry enough. If we decided to stay 150 hours in a row, don't you think he'd show up? We just don't do that. That's why he doesn't show up like that. People don't hang out when, you know, I'm, I'm going to meddle. I won't go there. 
that it starts hitting 1245, 1 o'clock on Sunday, and you see people starting to check out. Even if they don't walk out, they check out. Come on. You want to see God move, or do you want to go hit the buffet or, or get the Mexican food and go home and watch whatever? And, and it's fine. You can do whatever you want to do. But let's not sit back and say, oh, that, that can't be God because of X, Y, and Z while we're sitting over here worried about lunch. You know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on that. You guys aren't any, nobody like that. There's nobody like that. You know, and, and, and it's on both sides. You got Pentecostal folks saying, well, there needs to be more healings. There ought to be speaking in tongues. There ought to be this or that. King James only, you know, whatever. There ought to be all, I've seen all that stuff on social media. And it's, it's just so ridiculous that we're going to fit God into, his, into this little package that we can perceive and try to expect him to do something that, that would appeal to us. And if, it was, if what we needed was what the world needed, the world would be one. Right? It's what they need, not what we need. So let him do it, however he wants to do it. It's my soapbox on the Asbury thing. There you go. But the point is, Jesus is sitting among these folks, and he's saying to them, hey, if you don't come into the invitation, somebody else will. And in that story, he is the one beckoning, compelling people to come in. Compel them to come in that my house may be full. He's the one doing that. So then in the, in the 21st century church context of that situation, we are now the slave. We are not the invited. We took him up on the invitation, didn't we? We took him up on it. He said, come, and we came. We didn't make excuse. We encountered him. When we were seven years old or, or 20 years old or 70 years old, whenever it was, we encountered him. Now we work for him. Now we're the ones setting the table, making room, making preparation. It's, we're, it's our house too, right? It's our house too. We worked there. The success of that house impacts us. So now we're the slaves, compelling people to come in. And so if we are now workers, just as Jesus said, we are now workers. Now we have our skin in the game, not just to get ours, right? If you only look at that story from the perspective of, of don't you make excuse so that you can be a part of what God has for you, that's a very limited situation for you. You're going to limit what God can do in your life because God doesn't just want to do things for you all the time. He wants to use you. He wants to use you as a vehicle, a means to, to bring his kingdom into a, a family or a region or wherever it is, right? So we can't just be sitting back getting spiritually fat, saying, oh, Lord, prepare a table Sunday. Lord, I need a table on Sunday. Yeah, you might need it, and that's fine, but compel them to come in. Let them get some of the table too. So now that we're workers, we can go back to John chapter 4, verse 36. And this was not mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago. Jesus told them in verse 35 to raise their perspective, lift up their eyes, the wheel, observe the fields, they are white for harvest. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. I put in parentheses here in all caps, that could be us. That could be us. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. There are things that, that begin to grow in you when you start working the harvest. Amen? There are things that change in you when you start working the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. That could be us. So that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. 
This is the beauty of the kingdom. We don't know what labor has gone in to our neighbor, our coworker, our cousin. Right? We don't know what labor God's we don't know what God's been doing through their social media. We don't know what he's been doing through their Christian coworkers. We don't know what grandma prayed 40 years ago for them. We don't know what all has been said. We didn't sow that seed, but we can reap it. We can reap a harvest that someone else planted a seed for. That's beautiful. That's amazing. That means it's not all on us right here, right now. It's not on us to just plant the seed and then reap the harvest as, as the time comes. It's on us to reap what is ready to reap and plant what needs to be planted. There will be so, uh, seeds that we sow in this time that someone else reaps a generation from now. There will be seeds sown now that our kids may reap from their kids or our grandkids from their grandkids. The kingdom is so much bigger than here and now, bigger than us. It can transcend all that. And it's a seed that somebody sowed 40, 50 years ago, some grandma praying in her basement till her knees were black and blue. Pastor Hall tells a story about a lady in our church from years ago who, uh, before she passed, she had, he had gone to visit her, and he saw her, her knees, and her knees were black and blue. And she said, he said, what was her name? I can't remember her name. He said, Sister so-and-so. He said, what happened to your knees? And she said, she said, oh, I've just been spending time with the Master. Oh, it's beautiful. Nanny Moore. Nanny Moore. It's beautiful, isn't it? Who all you think she was praying for during that time? Who do you think was the beneficiary of those bruised knees? Man, we don't even know the labor that's gone into folks. And yet now God is inviting us to join the harvest, a harvest that we didn't plant, that we didn't sow, but now it's time for us to reap. It's been ordained from the foundation of the world that now is the time for us to reap. How dare we? God forbid we sit back and we don't join in the work of the harvest. Now's the time. Now's the opportunity to reap what someone else has sown. When we join in, when we join as laborers in the harvest, we are partnering with all who have labored before us. Sure, the great pastors and teachers and all those great people, but, but their family too. Those folks who meant the world to them and to whom they meant the world. We're partnering with people that we don't even know. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Look, gospel and the demonstration of the spirit and power right there together. Teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Again, Jesus has a different perspective on people than we do. We're going to have to train ourselves to receive that perspective. And I say train because we might get a glimpse of it here and there, but it's going to take work to hold on to it. You know, we've had experiences in church and in life. It's hard to always be optimistic. It's hard to always be faith-filled sometimes. We've seen what people can do. And so we're going to have to work, some of us, on being able to, to hold on and keep that perspective. But Jesus sees the multitudes, and he feels compassion for them because 
They were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. This is awesome because it says it shows us that Jesus has a heavenly perspective, but it's also a real perspective. He does not deny their distress. He does not deny that they are downcast. He does not deny that they are wandering aimlessly through life. He never denies it, but he sees it, and instead of being hopeless, he has compassion. He sees it, and something in him says, I can do something about this. What would happen if the body of Christ would take on that perspective? I can do something. And I don't mean us in our own power. I'm not saying that. Jesus could in his own power. He's better than we'll ever be. But now he's in us. Amen? He's in us. The same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead is in you. And if that's in you, then you can do the same works and greater works than he did. That's what he said. We didn't say it. The apostles didn't say it. Jesus said that. Greater works than these will they do. We've got everything that Jesus had, but we often don't look at folks and feel the compassion and say, I can do something about that. So that steps on us a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus sees them and he feels compassion. He acknowledges that they're messed up, but he does not back down because they're messed up. It's clear that people are messed up. You don't have to be a prophet to know people are messed up. But it also doesn't mean that you can't do something about it. It also doesn't mean that you don't have a word in you that can speak to that lie. Or that you don't have light in you that can shine in that darkness. Or power in you that can overpower that thing. If that's what we want. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, hold on, I'm going to digress again. What we want to do is say, pastor's got it, apostle's got it, pastor Mike's got it, pastor Hall's got it. What about you? What about you? All right, I'll move on. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is guaranteed. It just lacks workers. It's guaranteed. When people get into the business of the harvest, they will reap a harvest. If you get into the business of the harvest, you will reap a harvest. You might have sown it and then reaped it, or you might be reaping what somebody else sowed, but you will reap a harvest. It is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest. Plead with him. Beg. Plead with him to send laborers into the, har- into the harvest, workers into his harvest, his harvest. What I said on that Sunday was we, we cannot plead with the Lord to send workers and then not be willing to be a worker ourselves. God, save Winchester, but do it through, through them. Do it through Pastor Hall. Do it through the pastoral team. God, save Winchester. No. God, send me. Send me. Plead with the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. It's his anyway. And this is a, this is a cool thing. When somebody owns a field and they're, it's, it's harvest time, they're not going to send you into the wrong spot or a bad place. They're not going to send you into the stuff that was just planted and expect you to reap from it. They're not going to send you into the field that they're letting sit for the season and expect you to pull a plant out of, out of the ground. They're going to send you to where it's ready. If you join the harvest, God will direct you on where to harvest and how to harvest, who to harvest. He doesn't just say, all right, go harvest. Do a good job. I'll see you in heaven. 
No, that's not how that works. It's his harvest. He's invested in the outcome. Therefore, he's not just going to say, hey, good job, go do it. Whatever you get, that's awesome. He's going to say, hey, no, go over here, talk to them. Talk to those folks. They need you. They're bound up. They're addicted. They're in pain. The enemy's wrecking them. You've been there. You've dealt with that. You know how to deal with it. You know how to call that thing out. You know how to cast it out if you got to. Amen? And then we reap. We reap a harvest. Plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We cannot plead with him and then not go ourselves. The eyes of the Lord are upon the harvest because it is his harvest. He's invested in the outcome because it's his. Church, they are his. They're his. Even if it's your children, they were his first. He gave them to you, and you're here to steward them and take care of them and lead them to Jesus and hopefully take them to heaven with you one day. But they're his first. He died for them just like he died for you. He died for every addict. He died for every bound person. He died for everyone who's been distressed and downcast. Every one of them. There is no one off limits to Jesus Christ. No one too dark. No one too bound for what Jesus can do. His light is brighter. His power is greater. It doesn't matter if they have a demon or a hundred demons. He's stronger by himself. He's stronger in you than he is than any of those demons are against him. He's stronger. It's his harvest. He will guarantee a good outcome. He could save anybody, no matter how low. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's the gospel. Jesus can take them from where they are into a new place of salvation, no matter where they're at. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus presents another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. This is interesting. We call this the parable of the wheat and the tares. All right, The parable, the word parable, I should have said this earlier, is an, an earthly story, an, an analogy that illustrates a spiritual or a heavenly principle. All right, So it's a metaphor. They use earthly examples. Jesus used a lot of farming examples because he was talking to farmers. So they would get it. Okay, He didn't want to go over their head. So in this parable, in this story, he says, a man sowed good seed into his field. Again, his field. He sowed good seed. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. And when the wheat sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also became evident. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. While you are gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at that time of the harvest, I will say to the, the reapers, First gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. This story, it, it mentions the weeds in, the, in ASB. In the King James, it says tares. I did some research on it. The Greek word for uh, wheat there, it has a, a neat definition. of There it is. Nope, there it's not. I don't have the definition. <laughs> Sorry. 
Okay. It means, um, it means a, a word called darnel. Darnel. D-A-R-N-E-L. Darnel is a weed native to that part of the world. And what's interesting is, and I'm sure if you've been in church, you've probably heard some version of this. It's called, um, darnel is called a mimic weed. Mimic, all right, like to imitate. I found an article from 2016 on a, a, a website. It looked, it looked legit. If it's not, give me grace, but it looked legitimate. It wasn't Wikipedia, so that's a, that's a plus. Um, but there was an article on there from 2016, and it talks about um, darnel, and it calls it Wheat's Evil Twin. Wheat's evil twin. It says um, if it's ingested, it can kill a person. And farmers would have to take care to separate it out from their true harvest unless they were planning to add darnel to beer or bread on purpose in order to get high. It turns black. So it looks like wheat. It comes up like wheat. But the, the, the kernels or whatever the proper term is, the grain on it, turns black instead of staying the normal color that wheat does. But it could be used to, to intoxicate. And in fact, it's a it's Latin word, you know, the whole genus, species, all that stuff. Its Latin name is actually derived from a Latin word that means drunkenness. Fascinating. Why would Jesus choose to tell a story about wheat and darnel, wheat and tares? Why would he choose to use this analogy when it comes to a harvest that he is reaping? It's his field. He sowed good seed. But an enemy came in and sowed bad seed. That bad seed grows up with the good seed, and if, if we were to just wipe it all out, if we were to try to decide what was good and what was bad, we would destroy the good with the bad. That's the point. The reapers come to him and they say, Lord, we'll go out and we'll pull it up. He says, you're not equipped to do that. Church, we're not equipped to look at somebody and tell if they're wheat or tares. We're not equipped to do that. That's his job. It's the job of the, the Lord of the harvest. It's his job to determine what is wheat and what is tares. It's our job to reap when he says reap. It's also our job to not reap when he says not to reap. Amen? Obedience is better than sacrifice. It's our job to say if, if we're pursuing someone at work or at home or whatever to, to come to the Lord, and then the Lord puts a check in your spirit and says, you know what, not right now. Anybody, anybody ever had that happen? Not right now. Back off. Back off. That's the Lord saying to you, hey, you're not equipped to do this right now. Because you might pull up the good with the bad. So this darnel, it, it, it's, it's, it has this intoxicating effect. It's called a mimic weed. It looks and behaves so much like wheat that it can't live without human assistance. Darnel seeds are stowaways. The plant's survival strategy requires its seeds to be harvested along with those of domesticated grasses, stored and then replanted next season. It gets in with the good and comes up. And it does damage and it's bad, whatever, okay. But the point is that God knows when the time is right. And God knows who is what. Right? In the story, there's wheat. There's good people. And he says that when we go on down to verse 36, it says, He left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him. And they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, or Jesus, okay? He says, I'm out here sowing the good seed. And in, in the other stories in this chapter, he identifies that the good seed is the word, all right? The field is the word, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom of God, and the weeds are the sons of the evil ones. So the, the ones, the sons of the kingdom of God are the ones who have received the good seed of the word, and they've become part of the kingdom, all right? The, the, the weeds, the darnel, they're the ones 
who are the, the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Interesting fact, this word angels here in verse 39 is the Greek word angelos. It, it does mean angels, but it means messenger. And it actually says in the definition, in, the, in the, the, the Strong's Concordance, it says by definition that it implies a pastor. In Revelation chapter 1, in the first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to seven churches. All right, I'm backing this up for you. Jesus is speaking to seven churches. And he says, he addresses those churches. He'll say, to the church at Laodicea. He will say, to the angel of the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was a place. Uh, there was a city in that region called Philadelphia, for which our city, Philadelphia, is named. He would say, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. He was not saying that there was an angel sitting atop these churches in the spirit realm. He wasn't saying that. He was saying to the pastors of the church in Laodicea or Philadelphia or wherever, all right? So it's interesting. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the messengers. The reapers are the messengers. If we are, in Jesus' other parables, if we are the one who's compelling them to come in, this word can mean pastors, of course, but it's the messengers, the good message. Right? Remember we said gospel is a good message from a good messenger. We're messengers. We get to take part in the harvest. We get to take part in the harvest. There was a time where we were part of that harvest, and someone reaped us. But there will come another time where we get to reap someone else. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? He says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father, the one who has ears to hear. Let him hear. So he, he makes the distinction that when the time comes, when the harvest is separated, God has a hand in that. And what needs to be thrown away and burned will be thrown away and burned. There will be people thrown away and burned, not because God didn't try to get them, not because of anything else except that they chose to ignore Jesus. That's the bottom line. What sends people to hell forever is not their sin. It's the fact that they reject the one who paid for their sin. You understand? Now, their punishment in hell might be influenced by their sin. But the fact is the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When we sin, we earn death like a paycheck. And eventually we got to pay up. But Jesus came and said, hey, I'll pay the bill. I'll pay the bill so you don't have to. And if we believe that, we get out of it all. We get out of it all. Well, it's too easy. Yeah, it's pretty easy until you try to do it for a few days in a row. Amen? It's pretty easy when you're up here on the altar and the music's playing and it feels all emotional. It's pretty easy right then when grandma's tugging on you, telling you to go pray. She'll go with you. But about day 10... When your desires start kicking up again, when your nature starts rearing its head again, you're going to have to choose that thing over feeling that thing. That's the reality. But it is the power of God into salvation. It's powerful. And if I believe it, I can get out of it, not just get out of it when I, go, when I die one day, but I can get out of it between now and then. I don't have to live addicted. I don't have to live bound. I don't have to be broken. I don't have to have all kinds of relationships I shouldn't have. I don't have to have bad people in my life. I don't have to have any of that anymore. All that life has given me can be undone. 
if I just believe in Jesus. Because he paid a debt he did not owe. And I owed a debt I could not pay, like the old song says, right? We owe it. It's on our tab, man. And if we don't believe in Jesus, payday's coming. It's going to be time to pay up. But the good news is Jesus came and he paid that. And then once we believe that and we're out of hell and we're out of all that stuff, then we get to partake in helping others come out too. What a beautiful thing. What a crazy thing. Why would God do it like that? Is there not a better way? Wouldn't it just be easier for God to show up, just split the sky open, step out and be like, hey, straighten up. Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be a whole lot easier to tell people to believe when they could see them. That's no faith. That's not believing because they want to. It's believing because they have to or they're scared to. And listen, there will be a day where that happens. There will be a day where God's on the earth and everybody could see him. And it's, it's obey or die. But by the grace of God, we don't live in that day. Amen? Because we'd all be dead by now, wouldn't we? Long dead. So, to wrap up, I'm done. We have been invited to go forward in the harvest. Go forward into harvest. We ourselves were once part of that harvest. But now it's time to labor. It's time to labor. And listen, if you've been saved a week, don't try to labor just yet. Okay? I would say if you've been saved a year, don't try to labor just yet. You need to get your legs under you. You need to learn how to walk on your own. If, you, if you've been clean and sober for a month, don't go back to your addict friends and try to get them clean and sober. Right? Listen, God can do anything. But he doesn't want you to fall because you're trying to help somebody. The Bible says that we don't let beginners do things that proficient people ought to be doing, mature people ought to be doing. You don't put babies on the battlefield. That's a great way to say it. You don't put babies on the battlefield. God knows that. It's okay to be a baby for a little bit. Now, 20 years in, you ought not be a baby. Amen? 20 years in, you shouldn't have to have somebody else clean your mess up or feed you all the time. You ought to know where the food's at. You ought to be able to go get it. You ought to know how to get in the presence of God in five years. But five months, you're still figuring it out. It's okay. That's all right. We want you to make it to heaven. We want you to take other people with you, but you got to get there yourself. Amen? Those of us who've been doing it a while, it's on us to make up the gap, to help you grow and get your legs under you and mature, but then also to do our part and to help those folks. So, a day will come where you are able to reach back into, that, into those lives and make a difference. That day will come. Until then, get everything of God you can get. Every scripture, every presence, everything you can get. Every gift, every fruit of the Spirit you can get, you get it. And then, a few years from now, you're going to look around, you're going to be a whole new person, and you're going to be ready. And God will say, go. And he'll point you to a harvest field that's ready to be reaped. Because it's his harvest. Right? Stand with me. Is that okay? Challenging? A little bit? Encouraging, hopefully? Church, for many of us, for most of us, it is time to join the laborers. It's time. And that's what we're doing as a church. We're joining the laborers. And I'm telling you, God is going to send folks in. He is already, and he will continue to do it because he has a harvest to reap in Winchester. Because he loves every broken person in this city.
and he loves all the ones who look like they're not broken. He loves all the ones who look like they got it all together too. He loves them too, and he can fix them too. Their issues might be a little better covered up, but he can handle it. He's not moved by your reputation. He's not moved by the last five people you've been with. He's not moved by any of that. He just wants to reveal himself. That's what he wants. And he wants to reveal himself in Winchester and in this region. And church, if we will join the workforce, he's going to use us to do it. He's going to use us to do it. And a lot of it's going to happen inside these walls. There's going to be a lot that happens outside these walls. They might happen in the walls of your home or your workplace or, God forbid, Walmart or Kroger. Right? They might happen at the gas station. Who knows what God will do when people sign up to work his harvest. You want to sign up? Anybody want to sign up? Amen. All right, all right, all right. Listen, some of you seasoned folks are a little trepidatious there. I didn't see some seasoned hands going up on some of that. That's all right. Let the Lord work on you. Chew on this, all right? Will you allow the Lord to let you chew on this in your spirit? Uh Uh-huh, okay, all right. Let's ask him to do that. Let's just come in agreement. If we're ready to, to sign up and labor, then let's tell him, and then we'll go, all right? Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your presence, for this awesome church family, Lord, and for all the people that we're connected to, God. We love them all. God, we don't, we don't uh, deny that there are folks that are messed up and broken and all these different things. We don't deny that, God, but we love them. And, Lord, you are teaching us to love them even more. And, God, we ask you, give us the courage to sign up for your harvest. Give us the courage, Lord, to speak to those in our life that we can speak to. Give us the wisdom and the discernment to know where to go and where not to go, to know what to say and what not to say. God, give us all that. Lord, we sign up for your harvest. God, we sign up for your harvest. We ask you, Lord, harvest Winchester. God, bring a harvest in Winchester, God, of broken people, of well, seemingly well people. God, bring a harvest of people who need you. And God, give us everything that we need. Give us the ability to walk in everything that we need. God, you've already given it to us. To walk in everything that we need to help those folks find you. God, give us opportunities. Give us the words to say. Give us the times and the places to be. And we thank you for it, Lord. And God, bring them into this house. Bring them into this house, God. Save our families. Save our loved ones. Save our coworkers, Jesus. We just call them in in the name of Jesus. Lord, we recognize your word says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And God, we speak sight instead of blindness. We speak light instead of darkness. God, we ask you to break down every stronghold in their minds and in their spirits and in their hearts that have been turned against you, that have have blocked you out. God, we ask you to break those things wide open in Jesus' name, that your light may get through, that your word may come in that they may be changed. We thank you for it. And God, if there's any change that needs to happen in us, God, keep changing us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you for coming tonight for Bible study. Thank you for listening today to The Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.